Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, emptiness, inconceivability, all those Clone Wars episodes, awakening, transmutation, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with writer, translator, teacher, and business consultant Ken McLeod. Ken McLeod began his study and practice of Buddhism in 1970 under the eminent 20th century master Kalu Rinpoche. After completing two three-year retreats, he was appointed as resident teacher for Kalu Rinpoche's center in Los Angeles, California, where Ken developed innovative approaches to teaching and translation. After his teacher's death in 1989, he established Unfettered Mind, a place for those whose path lies outside established institutions. His published works include The Great Path of Awakening, Wake Up to Your Life, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and A Trackless Path. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Vajrayana, Compassion, and the Importance of the Teacher with Ken McLeod. Ken, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here. It's been quite a journey. When we first discussed having a conversation for the podcast, we were going to do it in person because you're pretty close to the Bay Area. And so it seemed like a great opportunity to do a face-to-face interview, which is the way I really enjoy doing it. But the coronavirus, the Rona COVID-19 thing has intervened. And so here we are just maybe 45 minutes apart, and we're doing this over the non-virus transmitting internet. (laughs) Well, safer that way for everybody, I guess. And are you staying healthy and happy during this time? I am, thank you. I live in super suburbia here, just a bit north of Santa Rosa. And the only reason I have to go out is to go grocery shopping, and I do that once or twice a week. That's it. And are you now doing that fully masked and maintaining all kinds of distance and so on? Definitely. The Sonoma County Medical Director has issued an order, it takes effect Friday, that if you go into any store or any interior place, you have to wear a mask. And it's not to prevent you getting the infection, it's to prevent you spreading the infection. Yes. I guess there's many people who have non-symptomatic version, and so they feel fine and yet can be spreading it everywhere. That number is rather unsettlingly unknown. Yes, right. So many things we don't know about this, and so many of the experts talking about the situation are just speculating, right? Nobody knows. It's all too early. And yet it seems to have done a very good job of shutting down the world economy, shutting down whole countries, shutting down every form of interaction. It's amazing. Well, yes and no, actually. Because the CDC and the epidemiologists in America have been warning the administration for the last two decades that it wasn't a matter of if, but when something like this happened. And if you look at it in the larger picture, and this is a little harsh, this is Mother Nature doing what Mother Nature does. 
And I read a very interesting interview. I can't remember the person's name, but he was a history of epidemics. And he said epidemics are always a mirror of the society in which they assert themselves. And the Black Death in Europe, which killed a third to half the population, was made possible because trade was a new phenomenon at that point, and it just ran the trade routes. And in our highly global, interactive world now, things like this spread with particularly a sneaky virus like this one, which stays asymptomatic for a long period of time, relatively speaking, it spreads very easily. And actually, I'm quite impressed with the decisions that the medical community and the governor and the local officials are taking place in this area because they really did what they thought was best, and it seems to be working. Yeah, the future is unknown, but at least for now, we seem to have flattened the curve pretty effectively. So that's good news in the midst of everything that's happening. I'm curious, though, when you say this is Mother Nature doing what Mother Nature does, do you mean that in a larger sense, like some kind of balance is being achieved here, or do you just mean, hey, viruses happen? Well, anytime that any species becomes highly concentrated and proliferate, balancing mechanisms start to occur. They become vulnerable to disease. <laughs> yeah. And that's something that we see all over the world in all species, and humans are no different. The difference in human beings, and this goes back to Yuval Harari's book, Sapiens, Sapiens is that humans have an extraordinary ability to coordinate themselves in very, very large numbers. And that's what we're seeing emerging worldwide. Some countries are not quite on board yet, shall we say, but there's a recognition that this is a threat to all of humanity. It's not discriminatory in that sense. And the world's resources, both in manufacturing and in medical research, are being brought to bear extraordinarily quickly and probably effectively. Again, one wonders how this recording will stand the test of time, but it's so interesting to me how the West Coast governors have kind of created their own coalition to act together, and looks like a couple other states on the East Coast are doing something similar. You've got a coalition of eight states on the East Coast right now working together. Yes, and it's so interesting, A, because, you know, in the absence of a unified and reasonable federal response, the states are taking it on themselves to do it, which I think is really interesting. Well, in another sense, Michael, this is exactly what the founders of America intended. That is, there were going to be 50 states, which were their own governing entities. And when difficulties were encountered, or they're meant to be laboratories, and each could try different approaches to things, and when one was found to work, then the idea was that would spread to the other ones. And so, actually, amazingly enough, America is functioning exactly as it was intended to. Yeah, we'll see how this all plays out. And are you finding a lot of people reaching out to you for advice at this time? Not very many, very few. As you know, I stepped back from teaching 10 years ago, over 10 years ago now, 12 so there's a small group of people that I maintain communication with, and a couple of people have asked to check in and so forth, but life's quite quiet here. And what are you finding is the most surprising aspect of this whole situation? 
Well, for me personally, it was a fairly blunt reminder of life is fragile and life is uncertain, which is one of the aspects of Buddhist teaching that my teacher drilled into us over and over and over again. I mean, always wanted to talk about impermanence and death. The second thing is, given the early news, I felt that the toll the virus was going to take was going to be much, much higher than it seems to be right now. I was putting it, you know, in the tens of millions, potentially. And that doesn't seem to be the case, which is good news, I would say, on a lot of different fronts. I'm pretty impressed by the stability and understanding that everybody that I've been in touch with has displayed. It's not just the people I've been talking with, but the people that I run into and standing six feet apart in a line to go to Costco or a grocery store. There's just complete civility and helpfulness, and uh, nobody wants to be a threat to anybody else. So that's something that's very nice to see. I'm curious to see if it will start to lessen the culture wars or increase them. But I suspect that... My guess is it will lessen them. I'm curious what you think. Well, that's a very interesting question. Back in the 80s, when the culture wars were first developing, shall we say, I found what was developing very, very disturbing. And the way it has evolved has confirmed my worst fears that I had then. And one of the things that I've come to appreciate, both through Buddhist practice, but also through my small amount of business consulting, is that Once somebody has formed an opinion, it is extremely difficult for them to change it. And there's been a number of books, a lot of behavioral psychology, written on why that is. It's astonishing how very, very difficult it is, particularly when there's an ideological component. And because of that, I realized that this trend that we have towards polarization was probably not going to change until America as a whole experienced at least three disasters. Now, the first possible candidate was the financial disaster in 2008. And I thought, that's interesting. I hadn't anticipated a financial disaster. I'd always thought it would have to be an epidemic. I'm not sure that that financial disaster actually served the purpose. This one, I think, I unfortunately am of the view that the ideology is so deep entrenched that it's probably going to take at least one, maybe even two more. Yes. I doubt that the ideology will change much. As you say, it's very hard for people without any training or reflection to actually begin to change their deeply held opinions. I'm really not quite sure why you qualify it that way. I know people capable of great thought and reflection, and they are just as entrenched in their views. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I feel like if one works really closely with meditating on emotions that are tied up with thought and seeing how a belief is essentially just some feelings about a thought, it makes it much easier to start to look at other opinions and so on, but maybe your opinion is different. You must be hanging out with different people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you have to want to do it. Well, you're absolutely right on that point. The old light bulb joke, how many so-and-sos did it take to change the light bulb? Well, the light bulb has to want to change. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't mean this in any kind of disparaging way. I just have come to respect very deeply that spiritual practice, meditation, etc., 
doesn't necessarily lead to a change in those areas which are deeply conditioned by culture, because that cultural conditioning is so deep and goes so far back. And, you know, family and cultural conditioning is very, very deep. And Brian Victoria's book, Zen at War, Zen at War. Yeah, goes into this. Now, I've always found that very, very disturbing that people who are quite profound mystics in Japan, for instance, could absolutely accept the official line that the Japanese army was the instrument of karma, which was just as horrific as the Christian crusaders thinking that they were exercising the will of God, and actually a very comparable belief. I thought about this for a long time, and I came to the conclusion that insight does not help you free yourself from your karmic conditioning. The only quality that I think does is compassion. And the reason for that is that compassion puts you in touch with suffering wherever it occurs, however it occurs. And so you see and understand other people's pain, which people in the culture will say, well, no, that's just the natural order of things. And so they don't notice it or they don't regard it as a problem. But when you develop a deep relationship with compassion, you don't have that luxury. What is the feel like for you? Oh, boy. Sometimes like you have no skin on. And do you feel like that has boundaries or categories or limits, or is it just total? Well, here we have to be very, very careful. I mean, speaking for myself, yeah, I'm not going to claim for a moment that I've worked through all my cultural or family conditioning. I'm not even sure that's the point of spiritual practice. I think that's actually a uh, relic of the Christian heritage in Western culture. But yes, the compassion is in all directions because that's what you train. But the reason I'm saying this is tricky is that one, at least I have to, distinguish between what I would say a mystical level of compassion or a compassion of the mystic dimension, I don't know what the right word is, and practical matters. As one author, I think it was Susan Sarandon, I'm not sure, said that uh, if you take compassion seriously, then a father's going to be told that the life of a person on the other side of the world is going to be as valuable and as meaningful as the life of his daughter. And that's not how people work. We live in societies, we form connections, and that's an unavoidable aspect. People who train deeply compassion are not going to be in positions of I'm talking about the mystics we've had throughout the ages, they're not going to be in the positions of having to make some of the very, very difficult decisions that, going back to where we started this conversation, that epidemiologists have to make. When they're protecting the health of the herd, they may have to call significant portions of the population. That's well known in veterinary medicine, for instance. And humans are herd creatures, so the same dynamics are going to apply to us. We even see this in the military, where if a ship is torpedoed, the captain will close the bulkheads, order them closed, in order to prevent the ship from sinking, even though it may cost the lives of several sailors on the ship. And here I found an essay by uh, Richard Rorty, very interesting. He wrote about, is compassion loyalty to a larger community? And I think it's a very interesting question to consider. Ken, what would you say, you know, you've worked with so many people, what is a really excellent practice for developing compassion? For developing compassion, I know how I did it. I know how the Dalai Lama says that he did it. How did you do it? I took the traditional meditations in the Tibetan tradition, 
they're not easy meditations. They're not pleasant meditations to do at all. So mainly Tonglen or something else? No, here we have to distinguish between developing and cultivating. Now, you may think I'm splitting hairs there, but my teacher said that Tonglen, taking and sending, which is a practice which I've done a lot of, and I've translated several books on it, and I've written a couple of books on it, etc., so I know it fairly well. It's a very meaningful practice to me. That's how you cultivate compassion, but where do you get the seed from? Well, what I went to was you consider very, very deeply, you take into yourself the experience of someone being compassionate to you. And that's something I came to the conclusion. I mean, you're familiar with the four measurables, or as they're called in the Theravadan tradition, the four Brahma-Viharas. I'll give them in the Mahayana order rather than the Theravada order. Equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, and joy. Well, after reading Brian Victoria's book, this question of how do you cut through your own cultural conditioning and, and where does compassion come from? I was working with a friend, and he and I taught each other basically for 12 years because we had different traditions and we had a lot to share and help each other with. It's quite wonderful. And this is a question we discussed a number of times. The conclusion we came to is that in order to develop compassion, you need to have been on the receiving end of compassion. And when you're on the receiving end of compassion, that plants the seed of compassion in you. In a certain sense, that's actually what empowerment is really meant to be about, is meant to be planting an experience. So conceivably, you could say you could give people an empowerment of compassion just by being present with them in their pain and struggles without trying to fix them. And that's not easy. A lot of people have a lot of difficulty being present with someone in their pain without trying to fix it because the pain causes them discomfort. And so they want to fix the pain because they don't want to experience that discomfort. <laughs> you follow? I was somewhat active, not in a big way, in the AIDS epidemic. And I had a good friend who was extremely active during that period. And this was the crucial property or quality that people were looking for, someone who could be with you when you were having a very, very difficult time and not try to fix you, but just to be with you. And that was an extraordinarily meaningful experience. And people who are dying, they do not want people around them who are trying to fix them. They want people who are able to be with them in all the difficulty. So if you are on the receiving end of that, then you know how to do it. You may not know it consciously, but it's there in you. And that is what you cultivate in meditation by taking in what it's like to be on the receiving end of that. And at least when I did that, I found that there were all kinds of walls and barriers inside me where I didn't want to acknowledge that. I didn't want to feel it. I mean, it was just like really difficult. And I've taught this method to many, quite a few people, and they struggle with it. I'm thinking of a student who worked with me for many years. When he came to me, he was a Fox News Republican. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> but, but he was very disciplined. I mean, when I made it clear to him that he had to do half an hour meditation a day. He objected to it strongly, but when he realized that, that that was it, he just did. And, you know, in the course of his life, he died a couple of years ago, and I was very sorry that he passed away because we'd become very close friends. You know, his meditation practice was just always with him. And because of that, because of his determination or his commitment to the practice, then whatever he encountered, he would call me up and say, Ken, this is horrible meditation. I said, I'm sorry, Dave, that's just what you got to do. And he would just keep going. 
and worked through it over time. And everything changed about him in so many ways. And his wife once said to me, he said, Ken, I'm never ever going to meditate, but I've certainly benefited from it. <laughs> what, what is the name of this particular practice? Oh, I mean, it's just called compassion meditation. I mean, if you look in the Jewel Ornament of Liberation or any of the standard treatises in the Lamrim literature in Tibetan Buddhism, you find it. Interestingly enough, it didn't work for the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama describes in some of his books the approach that he got from one of his tutors that worked for him. And our retreat director, when I was in the three-year retreat, I'd got so much out of this, but he didn't teach it at all. And I would get quite upset with him for not teaching it to the others. And he just looked at me one day and said, well, Ken, that's what works for you. It doesn't work for me. And this is very important for people. We have many, many different practices for a different reason. Each person has to find a way. And I don't want to say has to find his or her way. It's sufficient to find a way. There's a movie, which I rather like, uh, called Babaziz, The Prince Who Contemplated His Soul. Have you ever heard of it? I haven't, but great title. It's about a Sufi elder and his granddaughter going to a Sufi festival. And it's quite a wonderful movie. But there's a wonderful line in it, too, which says that there are many ways for the soul to find God as there are people in the world. It's something that I'm seeing every day by you know working one-on-one -on -one with people really closely on their practice. Everyone's mind is so individual, and I mean, that seems like an obvious point, but when you get in there and you're working with someone closely, it's so individual. And how they're going to approach something and how they're going to understand it and the direction it unfolds. And it's absolutely unique in every case. Very frustrating, isn't it? You see, they have this nice path all set out for them and they go another way. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, I remember, I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember one woman I worked with for quite a while and very, very good psychologist. And I gave her a certain meditation, and she came back, and I went, this is really weird. What she was reporting wasn't usually what happens in the meditation at all. And so I said, please tell me exactly what you're doing in the meditation. So she went through it, and she had changed one of the instructions to conform to something that she wanted to do. And I said, okay, let's go back there, and let's change that and do the meditation again. So next time she came back, she had another report, it was more in the direction that I thought things should be going. but And again, she had changed a different instruction this time. And we went back four or five times this way. But this is how the particular practice had to be shaped and evolved so that it led her through a process. And the other thing is that in Buddhism in general, but also I think particularly in like Zen and Tibetan Buddhism, you have this idea of enlightenment. You think you're all going to the same place. I don't think so. I gave up paying much attention to the content of people's experience, paid far more attention to what effect having an experience had on them. And that was a much more reliable guide for me to whether there was any real understanding there. And would you look at something like uh, how it seems to be changing their life or the report of their children and you know how much nicer they are? Oh, like oh no, a, no, no, no. I mean something very different. I mean, mm -hmm. what changed in them? You're looking for a system change. And so they would speak differently. They would walk differently. Sometimes they would think differently. There were things that they might have been very concerned with but simply dropped away. Other things would come into the picture. There were really 
very definite changes which came about, even though it might not have fit the textbook case of, you know, this and that and this and that. I think it is far more individual to be led to believe, at least than I was led to believe in my own training, but I don't know how much of that was my own stupidity. I must take that into account here, too. <laughs> Always, right? But it can't just be any old system change. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, because you can have the other kind of system change where something happens to people and they become harsher, more closed, etc. Hopefully we're not going in that direction. Yeah, so what indicators would you look for in this system change? Well, Trungpa once said, you become less opinionated and less arrogant. And I think those are pretty good indicators. I mean, I've seen people, and I, I know people who have very, very deep practice in terms of deep experience. They're extraordinarily capable in certain forms of meditation, etc. But they are very patient people, some of them. Let's go to, for instance, the Eightfold Path. Right speech is described as being truthful, timely, gentle, and harmonious. I think those are the kind and harmonious. I think those are the four qualities, right? Most people think that the way to practice right speech is to try to speak the truth, try to speak in a timely way, try to speak kindly, and try to be harmonious. And the result is their speech becomes completely artificial, contrived, and just ties them up in knots. And, but that's not how you practice right speech. That's the result of practicing right speech, but it's not the method. The method or at least one method that I've found very effective for myself and something that I've encouraged virtually everybody that I've worked with to try at least, is to listen to yourself when you speak as if you are listening to another person. That is, you bring attention to your speech. And so as you're speaking, as I'm speaking right now, I'm paying attention to how I'm speaking. Now, when you do this, well, you immediately start to hear when you sound like your father or your mother. <laughs> and you go, where did that voice come from? And I'll give you two examples from students of mine. One is a real estate agent, and she was part of a group that I had in Orange County. So I gave this instruction, and a couple of weeks later at the next meeting of the group, she got there a bit early, and so I said, so Linda, how's that practice of listening to yourself speak? And she just looked at me and said, Ken, she never shuts up. <laughs> and I went, excellent, you're hearing it. <laughs> you see? And so when you do this, when you listen to yourself this way, you hear when not only what you're saying, but how you're saying it is out of sync with the setting in which you're saying it. <laughs> you just hear it yourself. And so you start to adjust. And it isn't a conscious adjustment. It's something that happens quite organically. The other example was a, was a business consultant. And he called me up and said, Ken, yeah, you know that instruction you gave me about listening to myself when I'm talking? Yeah. Well, I was doing it with my clients. I don't have a job anymore. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, everything I tell them is bullshit. It's all about trying to get another job. Right. It's not helping them at all. Yeah, I get plenty of work this way, but it's complete bullshit, Ken. <laughs> so I thought those two students were doing a good job in their practice. Yeah, very. You do note here that I'm not teaching people how to make their lives better. 
I'm, I'm teaching them how to be present in their lives, which is a very different thing. And which might actually destroy their current life. Well, hopefully it will. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, something I'm thinking about, Trungpa Rinpoche's statement of less arrogant and less opinionated, and that is, how does compassion fit into that? Well, have you ever met an arrogant person who's compassionate? Somewhat. <laughs> that sounded very qualified, Michael. Would you care to expand on that? <laughs> I don't want to say that they're absolutely not. You know, I think that you can kind of switch back and forth between being arrogant and being kind, but maybe not at the same moment. Yeah, they're pretty incompatible in the moment. <laughs> yes. Because when you're proud, you're holding yourself above, which is the antithesis of being with. You follow? Absolutely. You're not yeah. connecting. Yeah. And so let's go back to the practice I was talking about, listening to the sound of your voice when you speak as if you were listening to another person. And when you do that, you can hear when there's a harshness in your voice. You can hear when there's an edge in your voice. And so you let the edge drop. Now, that kind of dropping of those things that are out of sync with the situation, that is moving you in the direction of compassion. So you are learning how to be more and more just in the situation, just as it is. Do you agree with the neuroscience-based definitions of how compassion and empathy are quite different things? I'm thinking of the work of like Tanya Singer and so on, where they... I'm not familiar with these definitions. <laughs> so I <don't> ah. <laughs> what can I say? The short version is that empathy is getting in tune or resonating with another person's emotions. So if they're crying, you're crying. If they're joyous, you're joyous. You're simply reflecting their emotions, feeling it in your own body. Whereas in compassion, you are aware of those feelings they are having, especially if they're difficult feelings. You want to relieve them and you're strongly motivated to help them not suffer, but you're not necessarily taking on the feelings yourself. What's the purpose of these definitions? I think I don't know what the purpose <laughs> is. Right. Because empathy is a very recent term. It was developed in the 19th century and originally in Germany and was translated into English as empathy. Because I think the German, they just used the Greek basis of words in English to translate what the German was. Some friends of mine actually sent me an email asking me precisely this question, but they didn't quote the neuroscientist. They just said, what's the difference between empathy and compassion? So I don't know what empathy is, because I'm not sure how I'd translate that in Tibetan, so I'm just going to put that one aside. Compassion in Buddhism is very simply defined. It is the wish that others not experience dukkha. Now, the reason I'm introducing that Sanskrit word is that dukkha is usually translated as suffering, and I found that this is actually a very unsatisfactory translation for me. And I've moved to translating dukkha as struggle, so that you could say that compassion is the wish that others not struggle in their life. I really like that definition. And you could even take it a step further and say compassion is the wish that others not struggle with 
their life. Because it doesn't matter how rich you are or, you know, how beautiful you are or how intelligent you are or how poor or how destitute or how sick you are. Everybody struggles with life. <laughs> That's the human condition. And I think the, the point of Buddhist practice is to find a way of living, a way of being, if you wish, so that you don't struggle with life. And I think it's a better way of looking at it than ending suffering because, I mean, there's been these wonderful projects, teaching books and teaching available to people in prison. And some of those people have worked at their practice and they feel completely free even though they're in prison. But there's only one way to understand that and that that freedom they experience is a deep internal peace so they're no longer struggling with their situation. Now, you can say by advocating that you're just reinforcing the power structures. And I think this is a rather silly argument because we're not talking about the structures in society. We're talking about an internal shift that brings you into a different relationship with life. And that, I feel, is in the domain of the mystical. It's not in the domain of the social. Well, and presumably, if that internal shift is made, you might be more motivated to help others with their, against structural power differentials and so on? You might be, but it really depends on whether you are in a situation in your life in which you can actually do that. I think it's very presumptuous just to say that that is the outcome, because you look at the great teachers, you know, in the course of history, some of them have been active socially, others have been hermits, but it hasn't diminished what they passed on to us through the generations. Now, you are currently writing about Vajrayana, I believe. I'm trying to. <laughs> and, uh, believe me, it's very trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we've given you a break from your writing here. <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, talking with a lot of Vajrayana practitioners and people who write about Vajrayana, there's a lot of discussion these days about how difficult it is to adapt that teaching to the modern West. And particularly, I mean, it could go down a long list of why it's difficult. Oh, give me your top three. Gurus, deities, and rituals. And the problem here is? Well, I'm sure you know mainly what I'm going to say already. <laughs> no. So you're I, I, leading I, me into a trap. <laughs> in all honesty, I really don't. <laughs> okay. Many of my other podcasts are centered around discussing problems with the guru model that arise in the West. And, you know, like you, I've been very long term involved with a teacher who is a guru. And for me, that turned out to be a really good experience. I didn't have the experience that so many people have had. But it's hard to imagine, at least this is what people say, and maybe you agree or not, but it's hard to imagine Vajrayana practice without a guru. Like, how does that work? Where are you going to get your empowerments? How are you going to get the teachings you need? And so on. And it seems like so many of the very famous teachers, Zen teachers, Vajrayana teachers, really teachers of all traditions have come to the West, have 
comported themselves so egregiously, they've really made a mess of things, that it's hard to recommend as a model these days. Well, I think there's a sampling bias here. Go ahead. Well, one of my teachers was Dejong Rinpoche. Very soon after the Tibetan diaspora, he was brought over and installed at the University of Washington because he was one of the great Sakya scholars. He was in the Sakya tradition. And he worked with one person helping to compile a, a better Tibetan English dictionary, among other things. He didn't speak any English. He just knew Tibetan very well and all the literature, etc. But I was able to study with him because my own teacher had left me in Vancouver to translate for Lama. He left there in Seattle. It was a few hours' drive away, and so I would go down fairly frequently and visit with Dejan Rinpoche. And he gave us wonderful teaching. He's a wonderful person and extremely warm, and there is never any problem, anything. So the people that you're talking about are the ones that have been in the spotlight in many cases, and they've attracted a lot of attention, and they've poured their resources into, uh, or their abilities into uh, building large entities and things like that. That's why I say that I think there's a bit of a sampling error, and we also, if you take a look at other spiritual traditions, we have the same problems emerging when there are large institutional organizations. All kinds of problems have emerged in many, many different ones. That is absolutely true. Yeah. yeah. So I think that taking those as the norm for everybody else, I think, is a sampling error. I feel like this one-on-one -on -one relationship between a student and a teacher is incredibly valuable, maybe crucial. And in a way, it's just the way human beings learn anything deeply. And I don't just mean in the realm of spirituality or in the realm of meditation. I mean in any topic. Having very close relationship with someone who understands a topic very deeply, who has dedicated their life to understanding that topic, and just working with them daily, being around them daily, talking to them all the time, learning the topic from them in various ways. There's a sort of a transmission that happens or a sort of deep and hard-to-define download of how their mind thinks about this topic and handles this material. And again, I feel like this is true in any realm of human endeavor and actually incredibly important. And yet there are other aspects of the guru relationship that seem like they are cultural artifacts or simply unnecessary pieces that we've inherited from the traditional Asian forms that really go badly awry in our culture. Well, the first part of what you say, I think you're right. Pierre Hadot, French classic scholar, wrote a book called Philosophy as a Way of Life. And he said in that book, as a paragraph that I like very much, that uh, real learning only takes place when teacher and student interact. And the reason is that in that interaction, the student has to step out of his or her world and meet the teacher's world. And the teacher has to step out of his or her world and meet the student's world. 
the teacher can't rely on pat answers. The student can't rely on his or her own conditioning. They both have to step out of their world and meet. And that actually is the meaning of sutra. Sutra is a Sanskrit word, refers to scripture, but it's derived from the same root as the word suture, you know, stitches, and joining things together. And it's described in the Tibetan tradition as the meeting of the teacher's mind and the student's mind. That's the actual meaning of sutra. Yes. So what you say, I think, is absolutely right. Now, what we have learned, and somewhat tragically, is that any attempt to import Asian authoritarian structures into the West doesn't work very well. And we actually have problems with our own authoritarian structures, but importing other ones really doesn't work very well for all kinds of reasons. But that does not in any way diminish the importance of the kind of interaction you're talking about. Now, there are several different factors which I think we've been struggling with in the last 30 or 40 years. And I've thought, you know, what is the appropriate model here? Well, if you turn back the clock to a few hundred years ago, if you were going to become an artist, you apprenticed with a master artist. And some apprentices, the apprenticeship was so harsh that they tried to run away, but they were apprenticed, and and they just were caught and brought back. And they would spend many years just washing brushes and cleaning up canvases and palettes and things like that. But they would apprentice to a master, and it was the same kind of intense personal relationship over a long period of time. And out of that, we had master artists developing. And it was the same in music and dance in almost any of the arts. And a lot of crafts as well, really, carpet weaving and dye making and so forth. But now, in our educational system, we've moved very much away from that. There's still remnants of that. I mean, you will find musicians and artists studying with a teacher for a period of time. It's not usually as long duration as it used to be. And they will study many more subjects and learn a much wider range of things than those apprentices. They would learn something really deeply, but not any broader than that one master artist that they were studying with. And so I think we need to look at that as probably how things are going to evolve. In fact, I already see this. I mean, some of my Western colleagues and teachers would always insist that the students study with them and only them. I didn't do that. I made it very clear that anybody studied with me had to be clear who their primary teacher was. And that is the person that they were always going to listen to and resolve their doubts with. You have to be very clear about that because otherwise you end up playing one teacher off against another. You've got to commit yourself to one, but that doesn't mean to say you can't study with others. And so there were a lot of people that I worked with who did study with others and who had other people who were their primary teachers, and I was not, but they found it useful. And I was quite happy to work with that. And I think we're seeing more and more of that. There's something to be said for that deep level of commitment because one of the mistakes that is made is that when you're committing yourself that way, you actually aren't committing yourself to the teacher. That's just the means. What you're committing yourself is to your own ideal of awakening. It means that much to you. Your commitment to that is what keeps you in the relationship so that you can continue to learn. Now, it doesn't always work out, you know, Human relationships are human relationships. And 
you may come to the conclusion you cannot learn from this person or you have learned everything that you can from this person or you may not learn everything they have to teach you, but you may have learned everything that you are able to learn from them. And we have examples of this throughout the ages. One of Atisha's gurus was a red-hot yogi, brilliant guy, but he had a, such a vile temper. And as Atisha formed a relationship with Bodhicitta, he realized he just wasn't going in the same direction as this guy. And so he respectfully took his leave and went and studied in Indonesia, actually, Dhammarakshita. Yeah, that's right. And then Chung Panajar, who's one of the Tibetans in the lineage in which I was trained, he was a Bun priest first, and very well known, but that didn't satisfy his mystical yearnings. So then he studied Dzogchen, and he became a very well-respected Dzogchen master, but that didn't satisfy his spiritual yearnings. So then he studied Mahamudra with a teacher in Tibet, and that didn't go so well. So then he went to another teacher and started to study with him, and after a short time the teacher said, you know everything I know, you know everything I know. And Chungpanadra said to himself, well, that means you don't know anything, because I don't know. uh, He said that to himself. He didn't say that to the teacher. And then at the age of 57, he'd had all of these careers as notable teachers in all these different traditions. At the age of 57, he went to India, which was a pretty hazardous journey in those days. And we're talking the 11th century. And he studied with 150 different teachers. But of those teachers, there were a few who stood out. A person called Rahula, two women, Nigama and Sukhasiddhi. There were two others, as I remember correctly. You know, so he studied with a lot of different people, and that was the expression of his commitment. And he would stay with each of them for a good period of time, and they weren't always easy on him. So, We could even point to the experience of Shakyamuni Buddha in this case, right? Learning his meditation from several yogis before going off and working on his own. Yes, yeah. I'm glad you bring that up, because something that I've seen in myself, but I've also seen in my students, I've seen in my colleagues and friends, you study and you learn, and you learn everything that you can, and you practice as hard as you can. But basically, you're learning what to do and how to do it, and somebody's teaching you this. And you develop skills and abilities to a greater or less extent, depending on your own proclivities, I suppose. But at some point, you've got to make it your own. And that's actually a very difficult transition. I've worked with a number of people who are making that transition with their teachers and because they felt in some way that they were betraying their teachers, which they're not, actually. They'd reached the point where they needed to make it their own. The problem in the West is, and I think this has a large part to do with our educational system and may have something to do with our social structure too, is that people feel that they are ready to do that long before they actually are. And so that becomes a problem. So it seems you do believe that the guru-student or the guru-sadak relationship can be made to work successfully in our culture. Oh, no question. I ran into an algebraic topologist, which is a pretty abstract form of mathematics or branch of mathematics. And he said, when I read about people's relationship with their teacher, This is exactly the relationship I had with my PhD supervisor. Yes, I hear about this often with science folks as well, where their PhD, their doctoral advisor, sounds very much like a guru relationship to me. 
So there are some areas in society where we still do this. Well, in business, you have mentors. And I know business people who've been mentors and they take people under their wing and develop them because they see their potential. And I see people who seek out mentors precisely to help guide them in that. Same in medicine. I mean, this is how in-depth human learning takes place. <laughs> yes. So this leads me back then. I mean, I'm very curious and interested in what do you want to say about Vajrayana? What are you attempting to communicate? Ah, uh, boy, it took me a little while to work that out. Only a little while? <laughs> well, it took me a little while to figure out what I wanted to communicate. Yes. Like two years. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> At least two years, actually. I could argue it took ten. That's why I was asking. Okay. Well, one of the things that tears me up is that I've run into an awful lot of people who practice Vajrayana for 20, 30 years, 40 years. Yeah, there's one person I'm thinking of, 40 years. And they don't know what they've got out of it. And they've been told all along, you just do this and the results. And when I talk with them, I realize they really don't know what they're doing in Vajrayana. And so that's what originally inspired me to write a book is like, okay, I practiced and did my best with this practice. And they're not particularly easy practices. At least I think most people find them quite challenging. But I definitely got something out of it. I'm not quite sure how, but I did. Okay, so what was the difference there? And I'm not quite sure how to put this in words. Rather than giving people instruction in this book, I suppose what I'm trying to do is to give people the flavor of the practice. And it goes back to what we were discussing about with respect to compassion. If you've felt compassion, then you've got a seed with which to develop. You follow? Yes. And so I suppose my aspiration for this book is that if people get a flavor of practice Vajrayana here, then maybe that'll be helpful to them. I mean, in just what we were talking about with respect to the guru relationship, it would be really nice if some of the listeners went, oh, yeah, I recognize that kind of relationship. Oh, Oh, so that's what they're talking about. You know, and that would be a really good result of this podcast. <laughs> you see, and the deity practice and ritual. I mean, let's be honest here. When you have a bunch of monks in a temple or in a monastery, you got to do something to keep them busy. So you had rituals. And, you know, Rinpoche's teacher did the three-year retreat, and then he came out of the three-year retreat. He found himself being the monastery's tailor, which was a lot of work because they was making brocade banners and various other things and shrine cloths and all kinds of things for all of the rituals. And he did this for a few years, and then he decided it was a waste of time. But he couldn't get leave to go and practice. And anybody who thinks that monasteries were conducive environments for practice is really being terribly romantic. <laughs> so the only way for him is that he went into one of the monastery's latrines and jammed the door so it could not be opened. Now, I don't think you need much imagination to figure that the latrine in the Tibetan monastery wasn't particularly a pleasant place to be. Probably not. No, they stayed there for seven years. With the door shut the entire time? They shoved food underneath the door after a while. <laughs> Wow, that's dedication. Well, this is practice. This is tapas. Um. It's a serious business. I mean, 
anybody who takes anything seriously does this. You have these NBA stars. Well, I was reading about one as a teenager. He would position himself on a court, and he would shoot baskets from that point in the court until he sunk everyone. And then he would move a foot to his right and do it again. And so he had a body memory for every spot in the court, how to shoot Mm. that basket. That's dedication. (laughs) And who was that uh, shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles? Iron Man, I can't remember his name now. Kyle Ripken, yeah. Mm. He fielded a thousand balls every day. Yeah. So if you want to be good at this, (laughs) it's the old story. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Mm. Practice, practice, practice. (laughs) So there's a question arising for me, which is, obviously, you're a very good teacher, and yet you have given up teaching altogether. Uh, I didn't give it up. It was taken away. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, I, I can, but I'm not sure it'll make any sense. Go ahead and befuddle us. (laughs) Well, I was teaching two retreats back-to-back in uh, New Mexico in 2008. One was pointing out instructions for Mahamudra, and the second one was called Buddhahood Without Meditation. It's a Dzogchen teaching, and so that was the name of the retreat, and there's a text I was planning to use for that. Uh, Between the retreats, there was a three-day gap, but only two people we're from the first retreat, we're staying for the second. So the three of us just had these three days of one person cooked, one person did the dishes, and I had a car, so I did the shopping. Because the retreat staff didn't want to take care of three people for three days. So we gave them a break. We took care of ourselves. And we had just had this delightful three days, very relaxed, you know, right at the edge of the prairies in New Mexico, a beautiful place. And they did their practice uh, during the day, and I did some mine, and I did a bit of reading. And then I'd have a conversation with each of them about their practice sometime during the day. And then in the evening, we just sit around and talk. So it was just really lovely, relaxed time. They're both very serious practitioners, and we had very good discussions. During this time, I was reading a book that I had read twice before by a professor emeritus at the London School of Economics called John Gray. Not the John Gray of Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus, but this is a different John Gray. And the book's called Straw Dogs. And the first time I'd read it, I'd found it quite disturbing. As uh, my friend Stephen Batchelor says, it's a concerted attack on liberal humanism with arguments that are extremely difficult to refute. And then I'd read it again sometime later and got a lot more out of it because I had adjusted to the way this person was thinking. So I was reading it for the third time. I'm not quite sure why, but I was drawn to it. I just found it very interesting. And I read this line. I'm not sure I'm quoting it verbatim or you know, accurately, but words to this effect. Philosophers claim to be seeking truth when in fact they're seeking peace. And everything stopped. And my body changed, my mind changed, everything changed. And I was completely at peace in a way that I'd never experienced before. And uh, all I wanted to do was to walk out on the prairie and just keep going. (laughs) Not practical. I had 18 people coming in two days to do a retreat. That option was closed to me. But if I could have, I would have walked out then and there. Difficult to say. I mulled over my experience. I don't know. 
as I dwelt in it. I don't know what the right word is. In any event, I realized as you adjusted to it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I realized I was completely finished as a teacher. I had nothing to teach, and I was done. In that sense, it wasn't a decision. It was like the switch turned off. Right, it was presented to you. Uh, yeah, and now I tried to talk about this with some of the senior students who came for the second retreat. They were very clear with me. They said, no, you cannot do this. Not allowed. <laughs> Not allowed. And so I grudgingly agreed to do another retreat the next year. They just said, tell us what you want to do, and we'll arrange it. Well, thank you. But when I went back to Los Angeles after the 10-day retreat, I uh, immediately started referring my students to other people and just mm. quietly over the next year and a half quietly just dissolved my teaching practice and i did teach two more retreats in new mexico but uh, the last one was in 2010 and at the end of that one i knew i was completely finished and there was no going forward and uh, and i've tried periodically to just do question and answer periods but i found that progressively as i would do these i would get more and more the reaction in the body was just greater and greater levels of discomfort. So I've discontinued doing even that now. And so just, that's how it is. And so writing a book still feels doable? Yes, there are a couple of things I still have left to do. A good friend of mine asked me to write this book on Vadriana almost 20 years ago. And it's been on my mind since. I feel a deep gratitude and a responsibility to my teachers, principal teacher, Kala Rinpoche, but Dejan Rinpoche and several others, and to the uh, training that I received from them. However imperfect a vessel, I feel I uh, need to do what I can to pass it on to others. So that's primarily what's motivating me here. And... I feel the same way about translation. There's something I want to do, passing on what I've learned about translation. And I think I've figured out how to do that now, but I'll do that. And then then I feel that I will have completed my obligations. And, uh, mm. and I have no idea what the future holds. Well, none of us do. Well, that's true. The, <laughs> going back to where we started, <laughs> none of us saw this coming. Sorry, the epidemiologists saw this coming. They saw it coming very, very clearly, but... The rest of us, well, we were asleep. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been a pleasure. I mean, if you've got something out of it, then it's great. I've enjoyed our conversation, and I hope it's been helpful to a few people. Me too. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, 
please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening.